We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty Owner. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. We have been breaking down the draft. Uh, we we kind of ran through the first half of the first round in our last podcast, and uh, we wanted to break it up into two separate podcasts so we could give each of the teams uh, you know, th- their proper due, whether it's uh, some praise uh, or if we're trashing them. Uh, we, we wanted to allot the, the proper amount of time of takes uh, on each one. So we got up through pick 16 uh, last time around, so we ended with the Falcons with A.J. Terrell. Um, Mario had a good comparison to Thomas Dimitrov. I forget what it was off the top of my head, but it made me laugh. Um, how you doing, Mario? Oh, I'm okay. How are you doing, John? Uh, good. It's uh, Cinco de Mayo, so um, that actually means nothing in quarantine times, and it's also Tuesday, but I don't know. Might, uh, might make some tacos later. That's about, that's about the extent of my celebration for the evening. That'd be pretty cool. I have uh, an air fryer now, and Ooh. it goes it goes really good with these 
uh, like frozen taquito things that in my case they don't actually have meat in them but it's it's still really good and uh yeah maybe i'll take out the old sofrito bottle and make some rice and beans or something like that i don't know that sounds really good i got i gotta pick your brain on the air fryer at some point but uh are, are you most with things are pretty good in there it's like even I would take the liberty of doing some experiments and stuff like that because you can I don't know it's it, it works really well with like meatless stuff too I know no one wants to hear about this stuff but like uh, you put like a, a some fake chicken product in there or something and it comes out tasting like KFC basically it's it's pretty crazy oh my gosh I mean I've seen enough infomercials on the air fryer to feel like an expert but I've yet to actually um, to experience one firsthand but I'm intrigued by this now. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of messy. It's it's not a I don't know. It's not it's not like uh, it doesn't work with everything. Um, but the things that it does work with, it's like surprisingly convenient. Okay, just don't air fry your milk and cereal type of thing. Yeah, not that. Uh, I at least I wouldn't. You know, I don't want to tell you you can't do it. You're an adult. Uh, you know, but I I would not sign off on it if were if it were my air fryer or cereal or milk. <laughs> Speaking of air frying some cereal, let's get into the Cowboys. Let's get into Jerry Jones's decision making. Uh, let's get into the Cowboys' first pick of the draft this time around. But actually, it was a very, very good decision that he made, and the, and the board fell in a very fortuitous way. I think this might have been one of the best pure values um, of the entire first round, and that that was uh, the Cowboys uh, having C.D. Lamb fall into their laps at pick seventeen. You know, he was a guy that you know maybe they could have considered trading up for. Um, certainly, I I don't think that they would have expected uh, one of either him or Jerry Judy to be available. I think Henry Ruggs was a possibility at seventeen, not a likelihood, but definitely. a possibility Um, but either way uh, the Cowboys went ahead and got probably the best player on the board and and someone that it's an interesting dynamic here because on the one hand I think the Cowboys passing game gets a lot better but as far as like a a evaluation of CeeDee Lamb for for the rookie season I think this kind of hurts where he where he falls in the pecking order yeah, it might hurt a bit for redraft purposes. I think in Dynasty, he's still way up there, and it it basically is good that he went to Dallas because long-term, uh, pairing him with Dak Prescott, or at least I assume Dallas won't let go of Dak Prescott, that would be bad. That would be, that would be obviously the worst-case scenario for CeeDee Lamb. But otherwise, the best-case scenario is Michael Gallup leaves after the 2021 season because I really don't know how they can afford to re-sign him. And then it's it's like uh, Amari Cooper will be, I don't know, 27 or something by then. And Lamb will probably hit his peak either in that like you know second and third year uh, onward, something like that. So Gallup's exit should time with Lamb turning into the player that you know was, was pretty much what we had hoped for. You can't hope for much more than that. The only way it could be better is if he was with like Pat Mahomes, basically. Right. So, I mean, that this this is a good landing spot. Um, yeah, like, like you said, the, the future timeline uh, for Lamb and, and when things are really, really going to click for him, you know, might be a little bit down the line. And uh, Gallup, obviously, really, really promising in his own right. Do you think, you know, in the in the very short term here, is there a chance that Lamb can sort of over, you know, supersede Michael Gallup as as early as year one or do you think that that is going to take some time especially with like the weird offseason here where we're not going to have uh, CeeDee Lamb working with Dak Prescott over the summer type of deal 
I think Michael Gallup is good, so I don't want to. I don't want to like make unfair expectations for Ceedee Lamb, but I feel like Ceedee Lamb is a much better prospect coming out. So it's it's kind of a a question of will Gallup keep improving? Like, does he have more upside than he's already shown? And and how quickly can Ceedee Lamb turn into his his like upside scenario himself? Because I, I feel like Lamb will be better. It's just a question of when that happens and if it'll be when they're still both in Dallas. Um, but I'm inclined to think that as good as Gallup is, it's also kind of a favorable situation to just be playing with Dak Prescott because Randall Cobb put up really big efficiency numbers last year too and he did nothing for like five years in Green Bay before that. So I, I, I can imagine it being uh, – not like a system where every receiver who goes in is good. That, that's not quite what I mean. But like uh, a guy who's on the the average line might look well above average in that offense. Whereas with Lamb, I think it's a guy who will be above average regardless of of the kind of the baseline that the quarterback sets. Yeah. So the, it all sets up uh, pretty well. Uh, for him and then moving on for the rest of the draft the the Cowboys didn't have a ton of draft capital necessarily but I think that they hit good picks at pretty much every single step along the way Um, in the second round they got Trevon Diggs a guy that some people uh, touted as a potential first round uh, type of talent I'm not sure that I've fully felt sold on that but certainly in the second round that that's a fine enough value Neville Gallimore another guy that um, had top 50 potential that fell to them in the third round a run stuffing guy out of Oklahoma Reggie Robinson a toolsy cornerback out of Tulsa Tyler Biotish out of Wisconsin uh, another fourth round pick for them uh, Bradley and I out of Utah a nice addition to that defensive line rotation as well and then they, they took a flyer on Ben DiNucci uh, quarterback out of James Madison in the seventh yeah, I got to admit, I don't know a lot about a few of these guys, especially Danucci, uh, even Biotage. I don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, I guess that's because it looks like he didn't work out at the combine, um, or at least I, I can't remember why else I would have uh, barely known his name when he came up. But if if he's available in the late fourth, it's, it's probably not like he's a great prospect or anything. But uh, I know some people had him ranked pretty high. Uh, and they obviously would like to get a long-term replacement after Travis Frederick had to retire. I guess Joe Looney – or um, is it Joe Looney? I think it's Joe Looney. Looney's is the guy. and Toonies. Yeah, I think it's Looney. I, I know it's not Tooney, but I think it's Joe Looney uh, <laughs> who's, who's the center that You're they're correct. expecting to take over there. Uh, but he's, he's probably a stopgap at best kind of thing, and it might be even one of those cases where they get in the season and realize – Oh, this guy kind of sucks, actually. Um, so if Biotis can do anything helpful, that would you know be, be reassuring for the, for the center position. Otherwise, I mean, I don't know what to make of Diggs. I'm kind of worried that he's going to be um, almost like another tease Tabor kind of thing where people – looking at what he did in the SEC where it's a lot easier to, to just kind of be like grabby and, and do stuff that's basically going to be penalties in the NFL – um, and he, obviously having a lot of pass rush help and, and just a well-coached group around him at Alabama. I'm worried that it's, it's one of those things where it's we're kind of mistaking the quality of the defense for the quality of the player. And uh, in Tease Tabor's case, it was just a disaster. It's like he, he ran slow at the combine and people were kind of like, yeah, but he's, you know, he's so good in the field. He'll be okay. And like he fell in the draft and it turned out he just like couldn't really play at all. So uh, I'm a little worried it's one of those cases. Although to be fair, Diggs didn't run. So I don't know what he would run in the 40. Maybe it's not the same sort of problem as it was with Tabor. But uh, I think it was a bit of an uneven draft. It's like Gallimore, 
he's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if he can really do much other than shoot gaps, but he, he ran like a four seven nine at at a pretty decent weight at defensive tackle. So he at least should be good at that. If it's the only thing he can do, he still at least should be able to do that. So um, we'll see I, that Robinson, the Tulsa corner. I know some people really liked him. I didn't really uh, research him enough. I, he, he That kind of blindsided me, but a lot of people who know their stuff did like that one. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think overall, uh, with the amount of picks that they had, um, I think the Cowboys can come away from from this one being pretty happy with the haul um, that they that they took in uh, from the draft. Uh, let's see, the next three picks uh, were teams that that also had uh, picks in the top half of the draft. Uh, so we've already analyzed them with the Dolphins, uh, the Raiders, and the Jaguars. Uh, let's move on over to the Eagles making their first pick um, of the draft at pick twenty one, going after Jalen Rager out of TCU. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you have that uh, mocked at at one point? I don't think so, actually. I had uh, I had um, Denzel Mims there at one point that, okay, using, yeah. you using kind of the same Justin logic. Jefferson pick there, yeah. Yeah, so the, it looks like Philadelphia kind of did use that logic. I guess wrong the receiver, though. Although, to be fair, uh, closer to the draft, I, I was getting back into my, uh, you know, Rager, truther, faith and pride so i was i was starting to get back the, the pride and i was thinking like no way rager's gonna go ahead of mims this isn't gonna happen um it's just that i thought rager was gonna still fall a little bit i would have sooner guessed jefferson would have gone than rager just because i i was at this point or at that point i was largely concerned that i was a lot higher on rager than the nfl but it didn't turn out to be the case and the and the eagles did exactly what i thought they should have done which is they should go with this two tight end base offense because Goddard and Ertz are really good. And even if it's not, you know, even though you don't go out building a team thinking specifically, I have to get two tight ends like these guys and make like a constant two tight end offense. But like if you end up with them, you may as well use them because they are actually good. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where as much as they'd like to have a good receiver, a good receiver group in a vacuum, it, it should also be one of those things where they help those two tight ends maximize their routes. And by doing, uh, by getting a pick like Rager, pushing the safeties back with his speed, uh, that was kind of what I was thinking with Mims, but Rager is the better player and, and the Eagles were, I think, smart to take him there. So uh, that's going to push the safeties back, or at least if the safeties don't go back, then you can send Rager past them and the safeties will start playing further back after that. And Goddard, Ertz, move the chains, hopefully keep Carson Wentz from getting injured more, uh, maybe give him some you know quicker routes to the tight end so he can take fewer hits. Obviously, Miles Sanders will be helping with the checkdowns and things like that. So that'll help Sanders, too. It's like if he catches these these passes in the flats and the if the safety's got his back turned instead of facing him, that could be the difference between, you know, 20 yards or something. Right, exactly. Um, I just – I was confused by the by the time that the weekend was over at what the, what the Eagles are doing at receiver now. Like I, I like the Rager pick in a vacuum – but then they go ahead and they trade for Marquise Goodwin. They they get Quez Watkins a little bit later on in the draft and and John Hightower. Um, so that that's just adding a lot of guy a lot of pieces there. And obviously they, they spent a pick on, on Ortega Whiteside a year ago. I'm not ready to give up on him quite yet. But obviously the Eagles weren't comfortable with with having to rely on him in a, in a major role at least uh, after last year. I think any team would be kind of shell shocked after uh, how bad that that receiving group looked late in the season there um so what do you make of this eagles receiver room right now what do you make of rager's immediate and then long-term fit uh here in philly 
I think somebody's going to get cut. Uh, maybe Alshon Jeffrey, maybe Deshaun Jackson. I don't know which. Uh, I don't think Reg Ward is a particularly good bet to make the team. He might. I don't want to like rule it out or anything. But basically, they have eight receivers who people would have assumed a few weeks ago would would be on a roster, and that's of course with John Hightower falling a little bit in the draft, Quez Watkins falling a little bit in the draft. Um, but it was pretty clear to see, especially also with the Goodwin trade occurring, it was pretty easy to see that the Eagles were prioritizing the boundary speed probably to keep those safeties back from the tight end. So uh, I don't know if they were planning on keeping all these guys or if it was more like they wanted to bring in players of that sort in, by, in you know, by volume, solve uh, the problem and, and just hope that, you know, maybe Quez Watkins and John, John Hightower aren't great prospects, but uh, one of the two they probably think will, will be decent. So they could keep all three of those guys. It's also possible that they cut Watkins or Hightower and just keep them on the pro, uh, the practice squad uh, while the other guys on the active roster. Um, but we've seen Alshon Jeffrey and Deshaun Jackson get hurt constantly for right. at least two years now. I'm still skeptical that they'll, I don't know what's going on with Alshon Jeffrey, but um, they can't keep all eight of those guys. And I really would be surprised if they cut JJ Arcega white, Ortega Whiteside. So um, maybe another thing they could do is get, some reps for Ortega Whiteside uh, from more of like a tight end kind of look. I don't know. Um, we'll see, but it's it's a lot of receivers there. And if if you had hopes for Greg Ward, though, I would probably try to let that go. We'll always have the late season DFS Greg Ward, though. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm more disappointed about Deontay uh, Deontay Burnett because I actually think he's probably pretty good, but um, I, I get it. It's like the the Eagles, if they're going to have two tight ends out there eight times out of ten, then they're going to need to go hyper, you know, on the speed with the other two reps that they get because uh, safeties are just going to clamp on the tight ends if they don't. Right. So they they needed to uh, address the speed problem. They they did, um, but now it's just a very very crowded group with a lot of you know like yeah. big expensive veterans. So I I think that something's got to give there. I think you you probably have the right idea, and that one of those veterans uh, might be shown the door, whether it's Jeffrey or Jackson, not sure which at at this stage. Um, I don't know. It kind of feels like the Jeffrey Philadelphia time maybe needs to end, but uh, we'll see. Um, and then, of course, we, we couldn't be breaking down this Philadelphia draft without addressing the, the other big elephant in the room, one of the bigger surprises from, from day two and, and maybe the draft as a whole, uh, them spending their second-round pick on Jalen Hurts. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that one. I think it was worth the selection in terms of the player and the draft slot, but it's pretty difficult to imagine them actually utilizing this player unless Carson Wentz is just not on the field which he could get injured he's done that before but it's also one of those things man it, it's it's as, as much as it's nice to have a backup quarterback who's good a Jalen Hurts might not be a good quarterback I mean I thought he was a good pick there for, for you know the prospect profile that he has but it's hard to find good quarterbacks and it's, it, you know, the further away from the top of the draft you get, the more likely they are of course to not be any good. So it's, it's not a guarantee that he offers anything. And then in the meantime, it's like, even if he is good, he's not making Wentz better. So it's, it's a, it's a pick that's pretty luxurious and maybe they can justify it because their roster is pretty well put together. Uh, maybe most importantly, the offensive line seems pretty well set and uh, the defensive line, you know, has, has been good for a while. They've got some depth, especially on the interior there. So 
they didn't really have that many needs and they addressed most of the needs they did have through the rest of the draft. I, I guess I can't really criticize the pick that much because uh, Hertz probably shouldn't have gone much later than that either. I guess, you know, and there have been countless articles written about the, the Hertz pick uh, to, to Philly and, and all that. And I've seen some of them go in the direction of like, is Philly trying to, you know, develop their own Taysom Hill type of role? And I question whether that's like something that an offense should be aspiring to. And also I, I, I question whether like you should be like in new Orleans when it's like Sean Payton designing it. And this isn't like a knock on Doug Peterson, but like you also have like an aging uh, quarterback and drew Brees, who obviously has no, you know, ego problems at, at this point, he knows that he's, you know, like the, the face of, of the saints and the, you know, the, the all time, like kind of savior of that franchise Wentz a little bit more of like a precarious spot there. And then you get, you get like the added pressure here of, of Jalen hurts uh, getting picked in the second round. And that's not to say that like, I think Wentz's starting job is, is in any sort of trouble, but it just p- politically speaking, it just feels like a, a weird thing to just kind of toss into what I think was maybe uh, not the most stable, uh, like political structure there in Philly. Yeah, maybe I, I, can't claim to know a whole lot about their, uh, you know, just like team situation. I don't know much about like, like this whole thing about Alshon and Jeffrey apparently being uh, a t- a, an anonymous source who was bashing Wentz to the media or whatever. Right. I didn't know about any of that. So if, the, if there's some sort of broader drama to consider with the Eagles, I might be oblivious to it. Uh, I, I yeah, I guess I guess that stuff could matter. But I don't know. I feel like even, even as someone who likes Jalen Hurts as a prospect, uh, I think I was probably a little higher on him as a prospect, definitely more than I expected to be at the start of draft season and right. and be, I think, a little bit more than the average person. Um, I don't think Carson Wentz should really feel threatened by him at all. Like, I, I think I think Hurts could be a good player in the NFL, but the offense as it's designed in Philadelphia, I don't think it's a serious question as to which quarterback is better. It's like definitely – it's definitely Carson Wentz. It, you would have to somewhat redesign an offense to make Hurts at, at his best. I think. I think so too. And then you know, it needs to be said that that Philadelphia did give Wentz a, a mega contract too at the yeah. before before last season. So it's not like they're they're trying to in, you know incite a quarterback competition. It just it felt like a strange appropriation of of that draft capital, but. You know, it happened. Uh, we'll we'll see how they manage it uh, from here on. And then uh, the rest of their draft, uh, they got some added speed at linebacker and Davian Taylor out of Colorado, really toolsy guy, if I remember correctly. Uh, Kayvon Wallace out of Clemson, uh, added to the offensive line with Jack Driscoll out of Auburn. We talked about those receivers that they got. Uh, Prince Tega Wanhogo um, out of Auburn, another guy that I think maybe could have. It was like projected as like a. What was the deal there? Was that a medical thing? I never heard be. why he fell. Because be, yeah, because he was when they fall high. like that. Yeah, when they fall like that, and, and when they're in the McGinn article projected as like a second or third round pick, and they fall to the sixth, it's usually because there's you know something weird going on. Right. So um, yeah, that that definitely it, it must have been a factor there as to why he was available so late. But um, you know, so big kind of splashy first two picks for the Eagles. And then they backfilled with, with some, with some solid, uh, depth at other spots. And then of course added more, uh, speed at receiver there. So we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out. Um, up next is the Minnesota Vikings, the first of their, uh, t- uh two first round picks, Justin Jefferson. Uh, so obviously with Stefan Diggs being gone and leaving all those, uh, reps open on the outside, I, I think that you and I kind of figured that maybe the, they would 
go after a more natural um, out boundary type of receiver than, than the slot guy like Jefferson. Jefferson uh, moved to the slot at LSU. That, that was kind of uh, his bag there and obviously was, was killer at it, especially this past season when, when Joe Burrow and everybody took off uh, for LSU. Um, but the more I've thought about it, the more I like Jefferson a lot for for redraft among this rookie class. I, I don't yeah. know if I don't know if he has the highest ceiling of the of this group of guys, but uh, when you look at the rest of that receiving room outside of Adam, Adam Thielen, I mean Jefferson like almost has to get a hundred or so targets just out of necessity. Yeah, I think so too because it's not just that there's this general starting wide receiver spot available in this offense. It's that there's, there's a profound lack of wide receiver competition. And I think a lot of people might be overrating Tajay Sharp. I don't think Tajay Sharp is very good at all. And I don't think it'll take more than maybe a week of training camp before Jefferson is clearly ahead of him on the depth chart. So if he gets ahead of Tajay Sharp and he's in these two wide receiver sets, two wide receiver, two tight end sets that they're primarily going to go with, then that's enough to get to that kind of 100 target range to begin with, I think. And then there's also the possibility of Thielen getting hurt again because he's going to be 30. He had the injury issues last year. He, he could be fine. I, I don't. I don't think last year's injury was um, so obviously the beginning of a downward trend because it was. I think pretty clearly just mishandled. They had him go back into the game too soon, so he right. aggravated it. So it would have been one thing if he had or at least for me, it would have been a little bit different if he had played that whole game more or less proven he had recovered and then get hurt again separately because that's, that's I think, probably more like a chronic sort of behavior of an injury, whereas this this one, it was just, he, you know, he may as well have just hit his leg with a baseball bat and, and you know, started the, the healing process over again instead of just going out in the field and, you know, re-pulling the muscle or whatever he did. So he could be fine, but if he, you know, and it wouldn't be weird if a 30-year-old receiver started going on a downward trend, even if last year wasn't the start of it, it could just start for separate reasons this year. And then in that case, and especially if it's going on with the Vikings defense regressing, that could be a really big target count for Jefferson because there's Tajay Sharp is the third or maybe Kyle Rudolph is like the third or sorry, I guess Dalvin Cook will definitely be the third target in this offense. Um but in terms of route runners, uh, from the line of scrimmage is probably like Kyle Rudolph who's next for competition which is to say nobody mm, yeah so I mean that this this really like Jefferson should be fast-tracked for uh, a ton of targets there and you know you can't replicate the efficiency that he had at, at LSU a year ago or anything like that but um, I think there's definitely reason to be optimistic on him especially in PPR I don't know if you've done any uh, best ball drafts or uh, since the since the draft took place, but I'd be in, I'm going to be interested to see where his um, stock ends up settling because I'm definitely more in on Jefferson now that I know that he's on the Vikings than I would have been previously. Yeah, so I'm actually in one best ball 10 right now, and he went in the 10th round to the 6th pick, which I think is actually too late. I would have – like somebody took – there's a handful of weird picks in this draft uh, now that I'm looking back in the order. But uh, so somebody took – Emmanuel Sanders at the last pick of the ninth round I would take Jefferson way ahead of Emmanuel Sanders uh, nothing against Sanders I just don't think there's much of a role there for him and he's obviously uh, trending downward uh, so I, I think Jefferson should go ahead of even guys like Deontay Johnson although I can understand why people like him too it's just uh, I, I feel like Jefferson 
if if everything stays the way it looks now, I feel like he's got to be in PPR. I don't know, uh, no less than like the wide receiver 30 or something like that. And I, and I know that sounds kind of like an aggressive ranking, but I don't think we should be shocked if he's a wide receiver two in PPR this year, just because somebody other than Thielen and, and Dalvin Cook have to do something in that offense. And the defense, I don't think will be at it's, you know, it should be a fine defense or whatever, but the Vikings defenses have traditionally been very strong and I don't think they're going to be that. Yeah. The, yeah. There, there's definitely uh, a potential for a setback um, on defense. I mean, they, they are pretty much reshuffling their entire secondary. Their secondary was, was, you know, kind of their, their downfall last year where Xavier Rhodes just, you know, went from yeah. a former, uh, you know, all pro caliber tight end or I'm sorry, cornerback to being a guy that was routinely uh, getting toasted. And even like, I felt like broadcasts were, were like starting to be almost cruel to him with, with, oh, yeah. and they would just like watch him, <laughs> watch him get completely lost. Um, so yeah, let us point and laugh at Xavier Rhodes. Yeah. And I was like, this is so fun. <laughs> yeah. That the, uh, the Monday night game against Seattle, I think really stands out for, for that one. Um, but they, they dressed, that uh, with, with getting Jeff Gladney um, had a ton of ammo as far as the, this draft was concerned and got you know three guys that I, I think could have gone in the first round at, not only with, with Jefferson and Gladney but also Ezra Cleveland tested really well at the combine so that that's a that's a solid pick Cam Dantzler, um you know he he's a he's kind of a Rorschach test as far as cornerback prospects are concerned because the the testing was so poor that you you wonder if he's going to be able to stick but you know he's a guy that um, LSU receivers said that he was the best corner or corner that they went up against and he was kind of able to hold I think it was Jamar Chase in check a little bit in that game against LSU a year ago so uh, we'll see how that ends up playing out um, but then otherwise I mean that just too many picks to, to really analyze on, on a pick-by-pick pick basis. But I, I think Minnesota can be pretty happy overall with, with the way that they went with it. I, I thought they maybe could have packaged some of those trades to, to move up for, for more valuable uh, draft slots. But they were – and they did move around a fair bit, but they moved back a fair bit uh, mostly. So just felt like that they could have just gotten more quality players and less quantity. But I, I think the the – balance between quantity and quality that they got uh from this draft was fine overall yeah i thought wanham and lynch were pretty good picks in the fourth round uh, that's james lynch and dj wanham uh probably just rotational guys but they're good players to have as rotational prospects i think and uh yeah i like gladney don't know what to make a dantzler he i guess he pro- probably projects as like a levi wallace which could work for certain schemes I don't know if Zimmer's scheme is the one that will bring the most out of them, but I guess we'll see. It's interesting that the LSU re- receivers had said that. Uh, yeah, the only Vikings pick that I don't really like is the Osborne uh, from K- KJ Osborne from Miami. I don't think he's good, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty good draft overall. All right. Um, before we move on uh, to our next team, we got a message from our friends over at Dynasty Owner. The best fantasy football leagues are those where every owner constantly pays attention, responds to trade offers, changes their lineup, and are always looking to improve their team. There's no offseason for these owners. That's who you're challenging yourself against in Dynasty Owner. Other elite fantasy football players who are committed to competing. 
Dynasty Owner is the only fantasy football platform with a patent game using actual NFL salaries and contracts. Combine this with a salary cap, elite trading options, advanced team rosters, and devoted elite owners to compete against, and you're faced with the same decisions NFL owners and general managers must make. If you're ready to take on the best, then don't miss out. Join the waitlist at dynastyowner.com. That's dynastyowner.com. All right, moving on. Uh, we got the Chargers uh, who who moved up uh, with the Patriots uh, to make this pick um, over at 23. This was their second pick um, of the first round. I guess we, we glossed over it a little bit uh, last time. Bad out. pick. But yeah, that that's a lot for an inside linebacker who's who's kind of a project at this stage. Yeah, he'll be a really good IDP because the Chargers aren't going to be very good and he's going to need to make a lot of tackles. But he can uh, do that. Yeah, he can do that. He's fast. He, he could be good. It's just um, it's just not worth it. It's not worth that trade. They had bigger issues, uh, bigger issues that probably won't go uh, getting fixed anytime soon. So anyway, good luck with that. Chargers, uh, the, let's see. So we had the the Saints was were a weird pick at twenty four. I don't really understand that one because they t- the, they took Eric McCoy last year. They took Eric McCoy last year, and they have Larry Warford there at guard along with Andrews Pete, who they just paid a lot to resign. So Warford has to be gone, and I don't know, uh, or at least like there, somebody's going to be a backup this year. You know, like there's there's no way to get all those guys on the field. So simple as that. I mean, Cesar Ruiz is a g- really good prospect. Uh, it's just kind of, um, it's, it's one of those picks where it's a little strange to take what was already a strength of the team and ostensibly invest in it further by displacing a prior investment. It's, it's just, um, I don't know. It it could turn out well because he should be a good player. The worst thing to happen, of course, is just picking a plain bad player and uh, they shouldn't have done that. So it should be fine. It's it's just a little weird because it's it's not exactly a win now kind of thing. And this is Drew Brees' last year. Right. And you also look at the fact that, you know, the Saints didn't have a lot of picks in this draft and they, you know, for for them to take a, a guy who might not start this year um, in the first round, you you figure maybe a better use of it would be to acquire more draft capital and, and trade out of that the uh, yeah. the number twenty four because they only had three other picks after Ruiz with, with Zach Bond in the third, Adam, Adam Troutman out of Dayton, Dayton I'm sorry in the third, and uh, Tommy Stevens the uh, the heir apparent to Taysom Hill uh, in the seventh. So uh, not like the Saints really have much in the way of glaring weaknesses that they really really needed to add drafts and like or add draft picks and, and really crush this draft they're, they're pretty much set to win now for this year you just would have figured they would they would have filled in it and try to find a need bigger than interior offensive line with their first pick yeah i think they really should have considered a receiver i think that as much as emmanuel sanders is a good player he's not good at things where they had a need specifically they they need someone to stretch the field they've never recaptured the uh like devery henderson or robert meacham role in this offense that or, or the kenny stills for that matter role in this offense so it's it's one thing to make the offense a little more horizontally oriented and more heavy on the ground game to suit drew Brees as he ages and it's another to completely forfeit the speed threat because what's going to happen or at least if i was calling a defense against them what i would do is just tell the safeties to creep up i mean they're they're, they're specifically 
kind of using the opposite logic of what the Eagles did uh, in their so the Eagles got that speed at receiver. The, the Saints just said we're fine with uh, this strictly underneath offense. We're fine with Jared Cook being our best downfield target. <laughs> and I don't think that's a good idea because it is, Emmanuel Sanders is good most of the time, but he doesn't usually play in a scenario where the safeties just do not care about the deep ball. Right, exactly. So, so um, yeah, that lack of speed. Uh, they didn't get a single starter. No. Sorry, I, I don't think they got a single starter here. Like this guy, uh, uh, Troutman's not going to start over Cook. And then even Zach Bond, I mean, he's a good prospect. It was it was good that they got him where they did. But it's like they got Demario Davis and uh, I can't remember who the other linebackers are. But I don't I don't think any of these guys are going to start. I I'm, I don't think so either. Uh, Demario Davis, uh, Kiko Alonso, and oh yeah, there Zalone, um, going uh, from weak side over to strong side. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how many how much they're going to how much juice they're going to get from this draft class in 2020. Uh, We talked about the 49ers last time out. Um, Let's get into pretty fun subject. Uh, Pick number 26, uh, formerly held by the the Dolphins. Uh, The Packers traded up for that pick, and they selected Jordan Love. Yeah, and I don't know what exactly they think they're doing. It's possible that they plain just plain want to get away from Aaron Rodgers and this was their chance to do it, perhaps. I would at once disagree with that course, but also take it more seriously and respect it more than if they really truly believe that they're they're being very clever like this and uh, you know, we're solving the long term question while still you know competing for right now because you're not competing for right now anymore. Like you you just. You, Aaron Rodgers, I get it. It's like he's a neurotic kind of person. He's he's high maintenance, um, but he's still a pretty good quarterback. And I don't think he's he's uh, bad enough of a quarterback to try to think of ways or reasons why you should replace him. So I would instead use this pick to try to make the team better, like try to improve the actual reps that they're putting on the field. And then if they don't compete this year, it's like, all right, well, I guess maybe the Aaron Rodgers era is over and and we can uh, start working toward acquiring another quarterback or something. But right now you should, you should have been in this position prepared to either commit to Rodgers or cut him basically. And trying to do it both ways, trying to take the, the, the half measure or whatever, I just don't think it's all that practically feasible. It's just going to alienate Rodgers. It's making the team worse than it needs to be in the meantime. And it's, uh, yeah, it's not even, it's not a good enough quarterback prospect to take it on, take on that sort of destabilizing risk because as much as people want to say, you know, this is the same point in his career as when, uh, you know, Brett Favre or when Aaron Rodgers got drafted, when Brett Favre was on the Packers, it's not the same thing because Jordan Love is not the Aaron Rodgers of this draft. Yeah, it would he was have never had, like the first overall pick potentially. Yeah, it would have to be either Burrow or Tua who had fallen to that pick, and that would have been a very different question. Like even someone like me, I would have received that much differently. Oh yeah, it's more like it's more like if the Packers had drafted J.P. Lawsman or something like that. Yeah, so th- that 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 I think frames it uh, perfectly. Uh, so. So Jordan Love, like you said, you're you're not making the team better right now by by taking him, and especially when um, the glaring needs that the Packers had going into this draft were able to be addressed with with what this class had to offer, especially at receiver. I think the Packers were like one of eight teams. I uh, just ran through this yesterday. Um, 
because I, I was writing up the Ravens preview for the, for the site and, and seeing how many teams had only one guy go over 600 receiving yards, and the Packers were one of those bottom eight teams that, that only had one player um, achieve that feat. And you look at how deep this receiver class is, and for them to not only – you know, ignored in the first round, like that. That's okay in a vacuum because you know there there were going to be better player, still totally viable players there on day two. But then you spend your day two picks on AJ Dillon and Josiah Deguara. Woof. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty clear, or at least this is what I'm assuming. Uh, I think it's pretty clear though that Matt Lafleur is trying to make the Tennessee offense happen in Green Bay. So. And if that is the case, then it's almost like, well, you should have just not cared about quarterback then. Like, you don't even really need a quarterback in this offense that you're pursuing right now because you don't throw the ball. Yeah, that's fine when you have Ryan Tannehill, not when you have Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, and it's it's like, I mean, I think it's fine to go to that offense generally, but spending the first round pick on love, if anything, it's like they should have thought – wow, it's going to be so nice uh, a year from now when we don't care who the quarterback is because we're running it 45 times a game. Like Instead, they're they're trying to do this Derrick Henry thing with A.J. Dillon, and they're trying to do this... uh, Like You'll see, I think, the Packers kind of go with these rangy blockers. Uh, It's so weird what Tennessee does, and I don't really see anyone talking about it, but they specifically pursue undersized blockers at tight end and fullback. And this guy, DeGuara, is going to play fullback. He's going to play like the Kerry Blazin game or whatever, however it's pronounced. He's going to play that role. He's going to play the juice, uh, the juice check role. He's not even a tight end, and they spent a third-round pick on him. Um, but it, they 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 spent that third round pick on him because they're going to use him as like a, a boundary blocker. And the Titans do this thing where they get guys like Michael Pruitt and obviously Johnny Smith. He's, he's not a big tight end and yet he blocks. Uh, he's one of the most like uh, active blockers in the league. Like he blocks way more than he should, in my opinion, in passing situations. So they, they specifically sp- seek these fast undersized guys as blockers. And I feel like that's what the Deguara pick is. It's basically like, removing the theoretical tight end and putting a rep on the field that's more like a 240 pound fullback tight end hybrid for the sake of doing like outside runs uh and i think you're going to see a lot of that with aj dylan i think you're going to see dylan immediately uh start to harm the red zone production of aaron jones and honestly i I think the aj dylan pick is a really bad pick but uh he's a good player and aaron jones even though he's a really good player I, i i love aaron jones but he's always had durability issues going back to utep and uh, 14 of his rushing touchdowns last year happened in the red zone. So I'm fading Aaron Jones unless his price comes way down. Right. And, and like Jones also like had a, had a couple games where like he scored in, in bunches too, like a bunch. Yeah, of totally. So like he, he, even before this draft, I think that he was the guy that you could circle as like one, one of the top running back finishers from a year ago that was ticketed for some pretty significant regression. Um, I think the Dylan pick, uh, definitely adds credence to that. Uh, and then does this pretty much displace Jamal Williams's role? Like what, what do they do with him? I think he'll probably hang around, but I feel like they have to try to trade him because they don't truly intend to put him on the field or, or if they do, they can't justify that AJ Dillon pick really at all. So we'll see, I guess. Um, I, for whatever it's worth, I think the receivers are generally pretty good, uh, or at least they're promising in their own ways. And I still think Devin Funches can be pretty good. The problem that I have with the receivers is that they don't have any speed on the field and they, they double triple down on these guys like Funches, Lazard, Equinemius, 
Uh, I don't know if Valdez Scantling is going to play anymore, but even he, you know, just this big receiver uh, sort of build and nobody who can be sort of a, a dart like function. No one can do the quick cutting routes. Uh, there's no speed threat over the top and there's no one who can elude underneath. So it's, it just doesn't um, make for a very balanced offense in my opinion. No, it's, it's going to be funky. So um, we'll, we'll see if, if this all comes to fruition and they just have like a, an absolutely killer run game where, you know, teams need to creep up a little bit and then Rogers can, can kill teams with the play action. Uh, that's the optimist view. The the pessimist view uh, sees this being like a you know a, a team that that can challenge for the division crown, but um, a deep January run, um, not not as sold on that potentially. Yeah, I don't really see it. I think they could have. I think they're going to have problems at corner that they didn't have last year because they. Uh, I don't know if Tremont Williams is even getting resigned. Uh, and in that case, I don't know who's going to even play the slot position, which was Jermon Williams played really well last year. So they could have two liabilities at corner, e- even though Jair Alexander is really good at one spot. And the formula last year had really good results at corner that I don't think will be there this year. OK, that, that is an important detail uh, to mention there. Uh, let's move on to the next pick, a uh, guy that I, I like the film plenty, but um, I think the way that the board fell, I was surprised that the Seahawks preferred him over Patrick Queen and that's Jordan Brooks out of Texas Tech with their first round pick. Yeah, that was surprising. It's not a pick that I know enough about. Uh, It's, it's one of those things like I don't know enough about breaking down defensive film to, to get mad at this pick though, because I only see basically the stats and the fact that he's really fast. And as much as I would have taken Queen, if I was them, it's, it's like, uh, Brooks should be a similar kind of player. He's actually a bit heavier. He's 11, 11 pounds heavier than Queen, and yet he ran a 4.5, 440. He's pretty productive at Texas Tech, but that's also one of those things. Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, John. I'm just going to assume the Texas Tech defense isn't that great. I mean, uh, it's be- it was better this past year than it's been in a long time. I, I think that you know the, the move away from Kingsbury and an actual like focus put on the defense a little bit definitely helped uh him oh, okay. in the rest of that unit last year because they had uh, at least one other guy get drafted off, off that defense okay interesting yeah i remember that defensive tackle uh went somewhere baltimore but oh yeah that's right your guy uh so i think brooks should be pretty decent it's just uh i know that going into the draft the, the people who were supposed to be plugged into the league didn't raise his name as a first round possibility. So if they had good reasons for, for marginalizing him, then this might be a bad pick by Seattle. But I feel like Seattle generally, I feel like P. Carroll as many, as much as he's screwed up a lot of things, I still pretty much trust him to, to draft a linebacker. Uh, I don't, I, I loved Bobby Wagner. I didn't, I didn't think that uh, Brooks was as good of a prospect as Bobby Wagner, but uh, Pete Carroll, I guess if I had to let him choose a linebacker, I wouldn't feel that, you know, I wouldn't feel that anxious about it. It's more like anything else, I guess, uh, and, and just like decision-making generally. But he still seems to be able to coach defense a little bit. Okay. All right. So that there, there's a lot of tools there to work with with Brooks, like you, like you laid out there. But, again, it, it was one of those things where maybe they could have gotten him um, in the second round. Um, I don't like their other picks, though. Okay, uh, let's get into or, that. Yeah. Uh, or Daryl Taylor should be fine. I don't know. I don't really see much more than a – rotational type he, he looks intimidating but he's also an overaged prospect who didn't have that much production so i, I think he's i think he's just going to be a, a nondescript 
uh, 700 rep sort of guy. But uh, Damian Lewis, I actually liked in the third round. So that that pick, I liked the guard from LSU. I don't understand why the LSU offensive line was completely ignored in the draft when that was a huge part of why Burrow had it so easy. Like Sadiq Charles going to Washington, too. Uh, I, I don't think he can play tackle in the NFL, but he should be a really good guard. And I think Lewis should be a good guard, too. But then in the fourth round, they took Colby Parkinson and they took DJ Dallas. And I don't know... I don't know why you would take either of those guys in the the fourth round. I wouldn't draft either one in any round. And I get the theory with Parkinson. I just don't think people are, are looking at the right way. And I, of course, could be wrong. He, he was a decent college player, and he definitely is tall, and he's definitely faster than most guys who are as tall as him are. But the problem is I feel like he's only fast for his height, and he's not fast for his weight. And for his height, he is not heavy. He's, he's pretty skinny, actually. So there can be exceptions, of course, to, to certain rules. But generally, when you're six foot seven, like Parkinson is, you're going to want to be over 260 or something because you're, you're just going to be at a like a, you know, an anchor deficit being that tall with having a body mass index that low, basically. And being that fast on that that height can be negated by these other imbalances in the profile sometimes. So he would ideally be heavier than he is and still as fast as he is, or he would be faster than he is. Like if you want to be lighter than the ideal for for your particular height, then you need to make up for it generally with something else. And I don't think he has anything else. And I think you see signs of that in the fact that his numbers fell off last year. Very weird numbers. Like, um, you know, the the target count almost doubled, uh, but he only had basically 100 more yards than he did the year prior. Had about 20 more catches than he did uh, in 2018, but his touchdowns dropped from seven to one. So I think maybe that there's, uh, you know, an explanation that the Stanford offense in and of itself kind of took a step back um, in 2019, but still like that to catch, to have that many more catches and still be like marginally more productive in terms of yardage and, and, and and non-factor in the red zone when you're six foot seven, very weird. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe the Sanford passing game was just to blame. Maybe it's not his fault, but I feel like there's there's serious red flags in this profile, and and to me he's just a del, uh, like a maybe a day three kind of guy, a practice squad kind of player. Uh, I could put it another way: he's no Caden Smith. There it is. That's what the people needed to hear. Cause, yep, because obviously Stanford tight ends. Um, any other like lingering thoughts on this uh, Seattle draft? I like the Stephen Sullivan pick at the end. Yeah, that was good. Uh, you, you had a good call on him. I, I kind of uh, just sort of overlooked him in this draft. But uh, yeah, that's interesting that he that he was basically playing tight end for the first time last year because he is a very good athlete. Uh, him and Foster Moreau were, were really good athletes coming out of LSU, uh, the tight end program there. That's right. So he, he looks like he could be good. But yeah, I don't like the DJ Dallas pick because he's he's like a project who's ostensibly – an upside project, but the athletic testing didn't really show upside and the production no, while, while the production being was decent. I, I think it's basically just a, a team falling for the novelty of, of some player ostensibly being versatile. They're like, Oh, DJ Dallas used to be a receiver and he returns kicks, but he's a running back. And it's, I think sometimes NFL football people think that's cool, but it doesn't mean much to me in this case. Yeah, jack of all trades, master of none. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not over the moon on that Dallas pick either. Uh, let's move, move on to Baltimore. Uh, I think that this the board fell really well. Uh, for them, they obviously needed to address inside linebacker. 
Um, and they got Patrick Queen, who, you know, arguably the, the top inside linebacker prospect um, in this class. So I thought that was a good start for them. I think people kind of uh, turned their heads when, when uh, in the second round that they went after a running back. Um, it made more sense to me as, as time went on. Um, but it, it did it did strike me as odd at first that they would address running back when, you know, obviously Mark Ingram got, got hurt at the end of last year and he was a non-factor in the playoff game. And that, that probably left some sort of an impression there. But uh, Gus Edwards still a fine enough player. I think this is a very, very bad sign. Um, if you're Justice Hill, if you're a Justice Hill dynasty owner, um, this doesn't bode particularly well for, for him, or at least his future um, on the Ravens with, with this J.K. Dobbins selection. But I, I think, if nothing else, um, it, it turns a strength in terms of that uh, Baltimore uh, running back group into like a super strength, honestly, because you could, you could get into a situation where it's like, okay, the defense gets Mark Ingram off the field. You're rewarded for that by getting a fresh jk dobbins and that's not fun right i thought i thought that was a really good pick actually uh, the dobbins pick was good i like the queen pick in the first round of course i thought that it was one of those things w- with dobbins in the second round where i didn't expect them to take a running back there it, it was one of the last things i expected actually but that was also because i also that was also because I didn't expect Dobbins to be an option in the first place. They took the Rams selecting Cam Akers ahead of Dobbins for this scenario to occur. And if you had put this on the menu to me before the draft, I probably would have said, actually, that would be a good pick because I don't know. I just think Dobbins is too good to be falling that far. And and even though the, the Ravens have pretty much maxed out rushing production right now, Having a player like Dobbins is a good way to keep it maxed out and keep it from regressing toward the mean. So I think it's I think it's a fine pick from a, a, a you know positional uh, functionality standpoint, and I think the, the talent level of the player in question makes it especially easy to justify. So uh, I think it's it's really bad for Mark Ingram, but it's it's uh, and also Justice Hill, like you said. But it's it's one of those things where in the broader picture I, f- I feel like it all fits really well because i personally didn't expect hill to be that great uh if he turns out to be something they'll probably have something for him to do and i think also part of the calculus in addition to ingram being over 30 and he had some injury troubles back at the start of his new orleans career so it wouldn't be shocking if he had some bad injury luck ahead even aside from that though gus edwards has to be like a restricted free agent and maybe they're expecting maybe some of their analytics uh, uh, is looking at like the production of Gus Edwards and his age and his contract status and probably in past cases running backs who are 23 and average you know 5.5 yards a carry or whatever he has they they tend to draw some money on the open market so maybe they're assuming they can't keep Gus Edwards so maybe they're basically assuming that you know a year from now there's a coin flips chance that Dobbins and Hill are the one two on the depth chart. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. Because uh, Ingram, I think they can walk away from that deal after the, this coming season. Um, and so, yeah, that that is a possible play for the future and the present as well. So uh, I think this is a good fit uh, for Dobbins. As far as the rest of the draft goes, uh, Matabiki, a guy that um, you you identified from his really strong combine as someone that that should be um, one of those fir- one of the guys to go on the first two days. Um, I thought that was a good pick, especially yeah. with Michael Pierce being gone in free agency. Um, Devin Duvernay, um, after all the receivers that that went off the board between the Ravens uh, Matabuke pick at. at uh, 3.7 all the way to 3.28. Um, all those receivers that, that went off the board, I thought that Duvernay still being there when, when they went up to make their their uh, third to last pick of that night, 
um, was a huge uh, windfall for them because it, it, it was almost looking like they were going to miss out on the musical chairs for, for uh, receiver, and they def- desperately needed to add to, to that position, especially from this class. Right. I've probably made this clear already, but I'm a huge fan of the DuVernay pick. I think he's one of the best receivers in the draft, and I think there are probably some real limitations with him in, in terms of certain football tasks and, and certain uh, certain technique details with him might not be great, but I still think I think he's the uh, kind of like the opposite side of the coin of my whole hypothesis with with Van Jefferson. Uh, basically, these coaches look at these players on tape and they're they're totally ill suited to project what they'll be in the NFL, specifically because they know so much about you know coaching and being a wide receiver and stuff like that. So they look at these things where Duvernay isn't executing exactly the right way that they want to see. And they're just thinking that that's what matters rather than these second secondary details that we can look at the, you know, the production, the athletic tools, uh, the way that he produced and, and relative to the rest of the offense, these things are better indications of the, of that NFL projection than any particular detail about his technique today. You know, it's like we're figuring out what he's going to be in the future because he's not going to always be this thing that he is today. And and they kind of, they kind of miss the the, the things that are more important, which is his details like Duvernay caught, uh, he had basically like Justin Jefferson numbers, but in an offense that was nowhere near as good. And he was, he was averaging over 10 yards a target. uh, It had to be pushing like 80 yard or sorry, 80% catch rate or something like that. And this is in an offense that was more around eight yards per pass. That's, that's that's making him so much more productive than the next most productive player on the team. And then in addition to that, he's a densely built receiver with runaway speed, tackle breaking ability, plus hands. I think when all those things are true and when the when a guy produces that much better than the players around him, the way DuVernay did, that it means that these deficiencies that he has, if he has them, they just don't matter. They're immaterial. And I think in an offense like this specifically where – Lamar Jackson makes the safeties play him every snap, basically. And we've already seen it's really difficult to defend Mark Andrews and Marquise, uh, Marquise Brown downfield. They can't give as much resources on DuVernay as they do those other two guys. Those other two guys are already a problem. DuVernay is going to be really explosive in this role, I think. I think he actually has a lot in common with Chris Godwin, actually. And I, I think people who are uh, skeptical of him are, are – totally missing what's important okay and then how does he fit in this offense for uh the upcoming season do you think he can be that wide receiver two in baltimore by you know the end of september well boykin miles boykin should be better than he was last year and i don't want to act like he's useless he might be decent or, or more than that he's not he's not totally lost i still don't think he's nearly as good of a prospect as duvernay so i feel like if it's a fair competition and if as long as I mean, I don't know the impact of, you know, the the virus situation and I don't know what it'll do to the logistics of practicing and learning a playbook for, for new players and rookies. But as long as that's not a unique issue, uh, I feel like DuVernay should be able to catch Boykin soon. I don't I, I think he, he would generally play the slot in most offenses the way he did at Texas. But in this offense, I think he can play outside and I would expect them to trend toward an off a, a base a three wide base of brown 
and Duvernay outside and Sneed in the slot. I, I don't know. I, that, that's just kind of how I see it going. Yeah, because they do really like having Sneed in the slot, especially with his like downfield blocking ability. So it, I don't think that his his snaps are, are going away completely either. So Boykin's the one that's going to need to uh, perform well if he's, if, if he's going to keep Duvernay uh, from you know kind of taking over his, his spot there. And then the uh, rest of the draft uh, – Malik Harrison out of Ohio State, Tyree Phillips out of Miss State, Ben Bredesen going to compete for uh, the the right guard uh, job left behind uh, by Marshall Yonder retiring. Um, Geno Stone was a pick that that, that a lot of people liked. Uh, and then James Prochet out of SMU, another guy with a high catch volume. So it seemed like the Ravens have a type uh, as far as the receivers that they were looking for from this class. Although Prochet, nowhere near DuVernay in terms of that athleticism, but that's why he was available in the sixth round. Yeah, and Prochet would fit for that Sneed role. So, yeah, I, th- I think they could see it similarly to, to the way we do. It's like DuVernay, maybe he's a slot receiver in another offense. But in this one, just the speed and, and like moment, uh, the, the speed and momentum that he poses on something like a post route, like he could just run post routes. And, and because of the way the defense has to read Lamar Jackson on the handoff fakes, the way they have to watch what Mark Andrews and Marquise Brown are doing, I feel like it's, he's just dangerous by being out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's move on over to uh, the Titans. Uh, they picked at 29. They went with Isaiah Wilson. Um, sort of a little bit like the the Saints in that, that um, their first-round pick might not have that immediate path uh, to starting time. Um, but I think Isaiah Wilson, a good enough investment, uh, you know, six, seven, three fifty, former five-star, uh, recruit, um, his stock kind of seemed to rise over the course of draft season all the way up until, uh, that Thursday night. So, uh, I don't think that that was a bad pick at all. <clears throat> uh, they went and got Christian Fulton, Darrington Evans, Laurel Murchison, uh, Cole McDonald and Chris Jackson to, to round out their draft rounds, uh, two through seven. So how did you think that the Titans made out? Well, I was surprised that they took Wilson because they re-signed Dennis Kelly to uh, what I think in hindsight is is just like a well-paying swing tackled sort of contract. Uh, but taking Wilson, I think, makes sense. I kind of like it. It's it's just leaning into the premise that they're building with with Derrick Henry. You know, it's it's a uh, it's committing to the bit. And we always love to see that. And yeah, Isaiah Wilson is just a huge person. He's if it weren't for uh, Mecky Becton being in the draft, there would have been a lot more people talking about Wilson, but because there's a even slightly bigger guy, we, we were like, <laughs> we don't care about you Isaiah. but the Titans did because yeah, he's that gigantic. Yeah. Like, dude, you're, you're only six, six, three fifty pipsqueak. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's good to, to lean into the premise like this. Like Derek Henry is huge overpowering, uh, it's just dispiriting to have to play against him. So why not have a bunch of other huge people who are like painful to, to play against? I think it makes some sense at least. So I, I like the Isaiah Wilson pick Fulton. I feel like he had a kind of a weird, uneven profile, but he was a really good college player. So late second round, the risk is factored in already. And uh, Darrington Evans, I kind of thought he was a little bit overhyped. I think he's kind of the justice Hill of this draft, but Getting him in the late third is fine, and the Titans needed to add something at running back behind Derrick Henry. Making it a guy who's specifically fast is pretty interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's 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 good to lean into the premise in some cases, like with Isaiah Wilson. But you'll want some balance too, and and generally, 
you can't go without speed. Like you can probably go without power or size in an offense, I feel like, but you need speed from somewhere to, to just make the field a little bigger for yourself. And, and Evans should be good enough, uh, especially off the bench. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you get, you're not counting on a ton of, of carries for Evans, just enough to, you know, kind of take the, take the load off of Henry uh, when he needs a breather. And, you know, he adds that speed dynamic, um, you know, even more so that than Henry does obviously not not nearly as big as Henry but um, I thought that was a good like complimentary uh, piece to add to their backfield and better than anyone else that they had so he he's definitely second in line for carries for a pretty run heavy offense there in Tennessee um, and then rounding out the, the first round and then we'll get we'll get to a couple other teams that did not have first round picks uh, leading off I think everyone knew that that the that the Chiefs could go running back with their first pick, and they obviously had the luxury to do so. They they have pretty much everything else figured out, um, so they went ahead. They did surprise some people by who they had as their number one running back on the board with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, um, but I think that it fits really well with this Randy, or I'm sorry, this Andy Reid um, offense. So, what what did you make of that pick, and you know how did it change uh, your perception of, of him in redraft and dynasty? Well, I was hoping for Jonathan Taylor there, but Edward Tolaire makes a ton of sense too. Like, I should have seen it coming because I remember watching Clyde Edward Tolaire tape at LSU and just looking at his profile, his you know height, weight, workout numbers, his production traits, and I remember thinking this guy looks a lot like Brian Westbrook and Andy Reid. I should have you know I should have I should have figured Andy Reid would think, oh cool, I I, I will take another Brian Westbrook, please. Uh, and I guess that's what he did. So I think that it's a really good pick. I know that some people will fill their diapers anytime a running back gets picked anywhere or, or anytime someone pays a running back a dollar bill. It's very yeah, offensive. Make, make and I, very I just angry. don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know how to help you. Uh, just going to have to watch this guy be really good for the Chiefs for a while. And, you know, someday I hope you find peace. Couldn't have said it better myself. So um, do you buy Edwards Hilaire as a top 20 pick now? For Not in redraft. In Dynasty, he's golden. There's, you must it's, be it's so kind of, pumped at how that played out because you, you got him in, in our Dynasty, correct? Yeah. I mean, it was it, it was just kind of dumb luck, though, because it was before the draft. And uh, Is there a better I, kind? I don't know. Is there a better what? Is there a better kind than dumb luck? Oh, uh, the dumbest people traditionally have it. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky. I I was awarded in accordance with with that selection. It was in like the sixth or it was the late fifth round or something like that in a 14 team. So, yeah, definitely uh, really lucky, even though I just as easily could have ended up with someone like Akers or something. I was just waiting. You know, I was just I was going zero running back and and like a blessed idiot. It's it's a Edwards Hilaire of all people that I end up with. Uh, taking that approach but in redraft it, people are too high on him in my opinion because as, as great as Edwards hilarious as a prospect it's not a slam dunk case to make that he can outproduce Damian Williams and from scrimmage functions in other words like per touch you cannot prove to me that Edwards hilarious should be projected to do more than Damian Williams and, and until that's true I don't see how you can assume he'll just run away with the backfield. Like if it was Darwin Thompson, I'd say, yes, Edwards Hilaire will definitely be more effective from scrimmage. And here's why. But with Damian Williams, people can't really get I don't know why people have so much trouble with this. It's like it's like the it's some weird psychological thing where there's like a they somewhat blame him for Kareem Hunt not being there anymore or something because people loved owning Kareem Hunt. 
in, in Kansas City. And then when he was gone, people are just like, ah, Damian Williams, you know, he's, he's just a fraud. He's no Kareem Hunt. Uh, and, you know, they're meanwhile waiting for Kareem Hunt, the prophecy, you know, foretold usurping Nick Chubb in Cleveland. And, and just that doesn't happen in Cleveland. And Damian Williams keeps putting up big numbers in Kansas City. And every year, for some reason, now two years in a row, people are like, Damian Williams can't do anything. It's like, did, did you watch the playoffs the last two years? He put up huge numbers, like 4.6 yards per carry over 200 carries in Kansas City, um, like 5.9 yards a target. I want to say like 78 percent uh, catch rate. And this is with a ton of touchdowns. So on a lot of these carries and catches, he's basically being tackled by the end zone. And if it weren't for it being a touchdown, he could have boosted the yardage per per uh, touch numbers even further. So the idea that just Edwards Hilaire will definitely be able to do those same things, in my opinion, is highly presumptuous. And it's one thing to say, like, Edwards Hilaire will be better eventually. And, like, I can see Damian Williams getting hurt because he gets hurt a lot. But people need to understand what needs to happen here for Edwards Hilaire to do the things that they're getting their hopes up for. And it's specifically injury to Williams. This this obviously doesn't apply to you, but, like, that – the fantasy football community has to figure out what to do with Edwards Hilaire, right? And I feel like there's um, a big part of the, the discourse on Twitter is uh, the people that, that want to pump the brakes on Edwards Hilaire. Um, and I think it's, like, funny to watch people um, have to, like, backtrack or, or like, or delete all of their anti-Damian Williams tweets from a year ago to, to in order to, like, properly defend him in order to make their case about Edwards Hilaire. <laughs> Well, yeah, I I, uh, I, I might have missed a few things. I've all I've really picked up on is that the the discourse got like really extreme with Edward Tiller, and people are just point blank assuming Damian Williams is not going to play, and they're crazy. Uh, but yeah, it's Edward Tiller, and it's the Keyshawn Vaughn discourse that I don't understand. It's I think gone off the rails in both cases. Uh, but oh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes that one is is really wild too. I mean, it's just, it's as simple as groupthink. I mean, I, the people who are pushing. Keyshawn Vaughn really aggressively are, are there's some people who are big in the industry and they of course have due influence uh, due to their place in the industry. But I don't think that the people who are latching onto their reasoning are thinking things through. Like I, I can understand optimism for either or both players, but people are specifically presuming, uh, pretty drastic things. And I, I don't know where they got the, the faith that this will just be true. It seems like they're just hearing it said and, and buying in because it was by who, because of who it was said by rather than specifically understanding the argument themselves without specifically knowing the material themselves. Because I'm sorry, if, if you, if you're straight up saying like Clyde Edwards, Hilaire is going to do what Damian Williams did per touch. I feel like that's, that's just like unfair expectations for a player. I, I, I think he could, I think he'll be the better player generally, but a lot of what Edward Solaire offers is, is things to do with like reliability. Like Damian Williams has his durability issues. That's kind of the worst thing about him as a running back for the chiefs. Cause otherwise he's just a 220 pound running back. Who's really fast and catches the ball really well. Yeah. So, and then, you know, when it comes to uh, the, the Vaughn thing, I, I think that a lot of people almost called their shot in, in presuming that whoever was drafted at running back by the Buccaneers that's like who they were going to ride with so it just happened to be Keyshawn Vaughn and that now they're just like now they're diving in like post-fact <clears throat> and trying to justify that like all the hype uh for that for that for whoever <laughs> that running back was going to be I think I've seen Hilaire go in the top 20 and I think I've seen uh Keyshawn Vaughn go in the sixth round and 
that's just crazy to me. And and I also think if if you're if you're bidding that much on either of those players, you have to have in your rankings evaluation of William of Damian Williams way back in something like the twelfth round, and then uh, Ronald Jones you must have back in in like the twelfth round as well. So. If, if you're not prepared to list those other two that far back, I think you should question your reason for ranking the, the rookies as high as, as some people are. Uh, you, if you can't reconcile both of those p- points in your rankings, if you can't make the logic consistent, then maybe you don't actually believe it. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's move on. A couple of teams that didn't have those first round picks. Um, let's start off uh, with Pittsburgh. Um, as, as far as like the skill guys that they added, Claypool, Chase Claypool was their first pick. A very interesting uh, prospect out of Notre Dame. You don't really see a guy that's six four two thirty eight move the way that he does. Um, so there was some talk about him moving to tight end um, at the combine that he tested the way he did. Um, now he can just be like a what, like a supersized Evan Ingram or something. I, I'm not totally sure. Right, but um. Either way, um, interesting uh, fit there in Pittsburgh. Um, a lot of mouths to feed there, but um, they didn't really get much out of the tight end spot last year. I think that he ends up being a receiver for them, but I'm not sure where he fits into that picture right away. And then when it comes to Anthony McFarland, he's really the only speed variable that they have in that backfield. So I think that he um, jumps into a role there uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, Claypool's a tough one for me. I like the player as a prospect. I think it's a fine pick generally, but it's a weird pick for their particular team because I haven't seen anyone refer to him as a tight end. And so that that's kind of what I would look to justify the pick for, as initially. Like I, I am an Eric Ebron skeptic at this point. So when I saw the Claypool pick, I was thinking maybe they'll list him at tight end and there's not been any confirmation of that. Maybe they'll change – uh, their their approach later because I remember they called Jalen Samuels a fullback initially and then when training camp arrived they were like ah, actually we'll we'll call him a running back so maybe Claypool gets a training camp and they say actually he's a tight end now who knows if he does get moved to tight end that would be better for his fantasy value I think just because a guy like him is going to basically play receiver most of the time like he'll, he'll be a tight end maybe a little bit but he's more so there to be a huge fast person who runs down the field so if he's if he's held to the tight end standard in fantasy where it's you know 650 yards is pretty good it's like that's useless at receiver probably but uh, the lower bar at tight end would, would basically be a loophole for for him and his owners to take advantage of but at receiver it's just kind of crowded and i will say this though i was I'm, I'm beginning to think i was wrong on the question of james washington versus deontay johnson because this claypool selection if he's staying at receiver i have to read that not necessarily as an indictment against washington maybe they like both players a lot but it's just not good for washington it's a bad sign because claypool being the kind of player he is having the speed that he does the rain uh, the, the catch radius that he does he's probably going to project for the types of functions that washington does which is to say downfield and inside like it, at the slot position and underneath and in the intermediate that's where juju smith schuster and deontay johnson play so unless they're going to have everybody running in the same part of the field it's like there's only going to be you know one thing left and it's downfield and claypool's bigger and faster than james washington there you go. And I'm, you know, I also wonder what Roethlisberger's arm strength is going to look like this year as well. So yeah, I have no idea. Like a downfield uh, staple of that offense, or maybe they are just going to kind of like pack the short and intermediate part of the field and, and rely on uh, after the catch stuff from Smith Schuster and uh, Deontay Johnson. Um, and then 
any uh, McFarland comments before we move on? I thought he's a good prospect. Maybe he can't project as a starter, but I, I feel like I, I would, for instance, have taken him ahead of Darrington Evans. I know that Evans timed a little bit faster. I want to say point oh five. Uh, uh, I don't even remember how to refer to decimal numbers anymore. Point oh five faster in the forty, but he's also uh, seven pounds lighter, five pounds lighter, something like that. So McFarland's more dense than Darrington Evans to the point that I don't think he's effectively slower than Darrington Evans. I, th- I think his, his, his like weight density adjusted speed is basically better, even though he's a four, four, four versus the four, four, one. So I like McFarland and I think James Connor is getting a little bit, uh, overlooked or, uh, uh, kind of like people are just like assuming he's going to fade into the, the background of this offense and the beat writers around Pittsburgh are saying that. So maybe they have good reason to say it, but Connor's problems were just getting hurt. Like he was really, really effective whenever he was on the field. And that even includes last year for the most part, considering how dysfunctional the rest of the offense was. So if he stays healthy, it's one of those deals where the Steelers to to take him off the field would be to kind of to to voluntarily not compete as hard. You know, it's it's hard to stick to a plan of splitting a workload if one player is just better than another. And I think Connor's probably better than McFarland just because Connor seems like he's one of the better running backs in the league. So I can't see McFarland running away from it, but I can see him uh, getting like a six carry two or three catch kind of role right away. Uh, and he should be good at it because he was really effective at Maryland and he's uh, really fast for a five, eight, two Oh eight running back. Do you think that he, at the very least, can challenge Samuels and Benny Snell for for those touches behind James Conner? Yeah, they should pretty much they should pretty much consider a, a, an entirely different novelty position for Jalen Samuels. Uh, I don't think Benny Snell is very good, but they would probably keep him around to do short yardage stuff or something like that if they were down to him and McFarland. So. I doubt they get rid of Snell. I would sooner guess they cut Samuels between him and Snell, but uh, I, I don't know if they really understand how to use Samuels best. So maybe it would be better if he was on another team anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, last year for it to still not have worked out the right way. And I know that there, there's a lot of other stuff going on there, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe Samuels better suited for it for another offense. Uh, someone Baltimore. Can, yeah. Something. Um, let's move on. We got a couple more teams here. Uh, Houston, uh, they didn't do a ton as far as the fantasy radar is concerned. Obviously didn't have the first round pick, um, went after defense, uh, for most of their selections other than Charlie Heck, the offensive tackle out of, uh, UNC and then, uh, Isaiah Coulter in the fifth round, but it's a crowded veteran group, mostly at receiver for, for Houston. So, um, hard to see, uh, Coulter making it an immediate impact, it, you know, if ever, I mean, making the jump from Rhode Island. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about him to be honest. I know that when I looked at his production, it didn't really stand out to me. He had good combine, so that's something, I guess. But they don't really have reps up for grabs at receiver. There, it still seems like they got to move Kenny Stills now, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the latest is on that whole situation. Whatever. Uh, the Texans draft struck me as not especially good. Uh, they they rarely strike me as especially good. But this one, uh, even for the even, you know, adjusting the expectations for how late the picks are uh, like Blacklock's just he just seems like uh, it seems like every pick the Texans make is just kind of a, they select a, a weird 
position perhaps like they don't necessarily go the way you expect them to and then the, whatever position they settle on they just take like the the highest ranked guy in the cbs rankings or something <laughs> that's always the, the prudent way of attacking it uh let's move on to the rams um so they their first pick was cam Akers. obviously they lost todd Gurley um this offseason um, but they invested in darrell henderson a year ago um so the Akers pick struck me as a little bit odd but maybe they're just going to see you know who of those two can really be that that next guy for them and then just forget about the other one really doing a whole lot uh van jefferson at receiver in the second round um that was interesting but um you know obviously they lost brandon cooks this offseason as well um what did you make of their draft and what do you what do you think of those two i think it's very uneven like most things the rams do over a course of time it's it's like some of the moves look good some of them i just don't know what they're thinking at all and the cam Akers pick was somewhere in between i guess i like i think he should be a good player i'm not exactly worried about him being a bad player but with that said i don't think he's in the same tier as as jk dobbins i don't understand how they justify that pick i, I think taking a running back is fine i still like daryl henderson but i it's just faith that i can't you know prove to anybody that they'd be wise to go with him so Taking a running back made sense. I just don't understand taking Akers ahead of Dobbins. And I'll never be able to get over it, basically, uh, unless I just look really stupid and Akers is way better than Dobbins. Then, then I can get over it in, in my own shame, you know, full of shame and, and with my tail between my legs, I'll, I'll kind of get over it. But until then, that's just a ridiculous pick for me. I think that Akers is more like a Lamar Miller, Marlon Mack kind of talent than a J.K. Dobbins or, you know, just the average second round running back. Like I, w- I would have taken him in the third uh, I, some, someone might say that I was wrong about Miles Sanders last year. Um, but a, I don't think I was, I, I think I was pretty high on Sanders initially before he started getting a lot of hype. And then I was more like, I don't know if we should just assume that he's going to displace Jordan Howard and Jordan Howard did get hurt before that, that whole run for Sanders occurred. And to be fair to acres, he does have that kind of athletic profile, the four, four, seven at five, 10, two That's really good. But it didn't show up that much in the production. And I just, I just think that when you have a guy like Dobbins, who's just wildly productive, we have reason to believe from his, uh, high school testing, actually, that he probably would have run and jumped pretty well at the combine if, if he hadn't sat it out. So when you have, uh, there's no reason to believe that acres is a better athlete than Dobbins. And there's certainly no reason to think that he's more skilled than Dobbins. So I just think it's a bad pick. The Jefferson pick is one of those things where, stylistically he fits the offense because he basically looks like Robert Woods and I'm sure that's the reason they drafted him but he doesn't actually resemble Robert Woods so I don't like the pick I think taking taking Jefferson there was actually a bad pick in my opinion he should have been more like a mid to late fourth rounder I I don't see why a player like Van Jefferson is better than a player like Tyler Johnson who who the Buccaneers got in the fifth round so the deal with Jefferson is People talk about how he's such a great route runner and how he gets these great releases off the line of scrimmage, which I don't have any reason to dispute that. I I would concede those points. The problem is he's they're just not the as pertinent of details as these people think. It's 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 the it's the coaching versus uh, it's like the coaching describing the player as as what they are now. Is, is not the point of evaluating a prospect. You have to guess what they'll be later. It, that's, the, that's the thing that matters. The observation of who's the best right now is only so useful. And in the case of Jefferson, when he's going to be 24 this summer, when he's two years older or three years older than most players that he's facing off against, he needs to be the best player in the, in the room at, at these, these uh, you know, technical details because 
if he's not, then he's basically not doing his homework. Um, but he was raised by a wide receivers coach, Sean Jefferson. He was he's turning 24. So it, he if he's not maxed out, I don't know you know what player could possibly be then. Like this is the the most classic case of a, a maxed out prospect as I think you'll find. And as much as he might look like Robert Woods, Robert Woods was hugely productive at USC, just insanely productive. He wasn't even 24 until his fourth NFL season. So they're not the same player, you know? And I, I think that um, it, in the case of Jefferson, it's also a poor, it, it's, it's a poor vision that the Rams are pursuing because I think what they're thinking is, oh man, this Brandon Cooks, Josh Reynolds downfield thing, it just doesn't work for Jared. Jared doesn't really like to make those throws. Let's get another Robert Woods. And that might sound great, but when you change the speed threat from Cooks to an underneath uh, person like Robert Woods or Van Jefferson, the safeties move up and the returns diminish for everybody. And that, and, and so you, they would be better off with just somebody like they'd be better off with like Demir bird at that position, just running downfield and taking a safety with him. So at least Cooper cup and Tyler Higby and Robert Woods can get open with Jefferson. It's, it's making the same error. I think as the saints with Emmanuel Sanders. It's like, he's a good player in conditions that you're not prepared to arrange here because you're just completely forfeiting downfield speed. And I, I just don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to be like Jared Goff more or less gets his numbers. Uh, but it's it's going to be ugly at times because th- it's going to be such a cramped offense with the safeties creeping up and, and Jared Goff completely unable to make them pay for it. Yeah, I think the the Rams are, are teetering back towards mediocrity at at a pretty decent clip here. But I do like the Burgess and the Terrell Lewis picks, okay. so it's like they make some good ones. All right, um, let's round things out uh, with the Bears. Uh, they didn't pick until the second round as well. It led things off with Cole Komet because we know that uh, tight end, obviously the, the biggest need uh, for those Chicago Bears entering the, the draft. Not like they got Jimmy Graham this offseason and paid him a bunch of money. Um, and then they also got Jalen Johnson, solid pick. Um, went went down the board with a couple other uh, interesting players. But uh, what did you make of this uh, Bears draft? Uh, any interest in, in Cole Komet and redraft? No interest in Cole Komet. He's a really good play, uh, really good prospect, though. I think he compares a lot to Martellus Bennett, who is who's a really good tight end, even though people uh, I, I know he was kind of annoying, but he was really good. And Komet's uh, a really good pick. Jalen Johnson, I think, is a good pick. I think he'll fit well with what they do at corner. But this team sucks. And the Komet pick, that was that was a good pick that another team needed to make. Like, it's not a great pick when it, when the Bears make it. So uh, with like with Jimmy Graham there, as you said. Uh, with them cutting Trey Burton and taking a bit of a cap penalty to to basically pay a ton of money to Jimmy Graham and then spend their first pick uh, on another tight end, whatever. Uh, maybe it'll work. I doubt it. But uh, I do like the, the Darnell Mooney pick. That was that was cool to see him go in the fifth round. But the Ted Gid the Ted Ginn signing that happened a couple days ago or last week or whatever, uh, I think that shows that they know that Mooney might not be ready, and uh, they basically don't have a replacement for Taylor Gabriel. Yeah, M- Mooney. Uh, not that Gabriel is like some hulking figure, but uh, Mooney. He's pretty good. Five ten, one seventy six. Yeah, Mooney's Mooney's fast at least, and he was he was pretty productive. He was very productive actually at Tulane. Uh, but Taylor Gabriel was, I mean, it's too bad with the concussions. But he was a really, you know, if, if he can get on the field, that'd be cool or whatever. But if if his career is over, he he was an underrated player. I think like he was he was a pretty pretty good receiver, and it's it's not insignificant that the the Bears lost him. I, I think that could be a real drain on their offense. 
Oof, and that, that's an offense that doesn't need any more drains, uh, no. certainly. Um, any other parting shots here before we wrap up? Uh, no. Uh, s- apologies to viewers if, if I've gotten a bit scattered or listeners are getting a bit scatterbrained going through all these this this maze of of picks that we've been going through over the last two episodes but uh i'm I'm glad we you know figured it all out we did and uh i think we, we put together all settled. a couple of good ones and uh we'll, we'll be back again uh, ne- uh later this week with, with our regular uh thursday episode breaking down the the latest uh news and notes and a couple other odds and ends uh from the nfl draft and just the league in general but uh for mario puig i'm john mckechnie thanks for listening to the rotowire nfl podcast <laughs>